The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organizations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. And welcome to the Rebooted Open Fire podcast, sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Dave Calvert, and my co-presenter is Mr. Tom Gilbert. Hello, Tom. Hello, David. How are you? What have you been up to this week, Tom? Um, not a lot, really. I just talk about fire and think about it. Haven't you been camping again? Oh, I do do a lot of camping. You do? I? Every time I look at open Facebook, you're camping somewhere. It's, it, it's mainly because of our choice to have so many children. Oh, has your wife kicked you out to camp in the garden? Yeah, she? pretty much. Yeah. We're like the um, the family from The Sound of Music. Mm. That's how we roll. <laughs> Had any more kids in the last week? No, four was enough for me. Four was enough. I tried to have a boy four times and failed on all four occasions. Yeah. So I'm just living with five women now. What are we doing today, Tom? I don't know, I thought we were just going to have a bit of a download, a bit of a session laid down. I think today we've got some interesting people in the uh, studio and we're going to talk about type 4 fire risk assessments and probably passive fire protection. We are. Before we do that, we're going to go, and this is going to get a bit confusing because we're going to go live to our um, fire safety news correspondent, Lucy Witts. Anybody listening last week will remember that Lucy's broadcasting from, is it, was it Belief, the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean? Beneath the sea, yeah. Okay, so uh, if Gareth, our producer, can cue those sound effects. Lucy, can you hear us? Just about. Okay, what's been happening in the fire safety news this week? Oh, I didn't know it had to be fire safety specific. So what I've got down here is that a lady became the oldest mum this week after giving birth to twins at 73. That is not even close to being fire safety specific. But it's going to burn. <laughs> wow. Oh, Lucy's gone dark already. 50 councils in England have been found to use unregistered fire risk assessors by inside housing. 50? Yeah, so over 50. Is that 50% or 50 associations? Oh. Both. <laughs> so there's a hundred housing associations. Sometimes, Lucy, I don't think you research your news items particularly thoroughly. This is why your job as a paralegal fell through. Do you have no internet on your submarine where you are? And to Scottish regulations now, coming into force in October, the new building standards will ban combustible materials in buildings of heights more than 11 metres compared to the 18 metres in England. Okay, I think, uh, Tom, uh, we're going to be discussing that later in the series. We are. We're going to have Colin Todd come in and talk about Scottish fire eggs. Brilliant. Best okay. person to do Is it, really. it more fiery in Scotland? Question for the group. Um, more fiery? Fiery fire. We'll ask Colin Todd when he's here. Interesting. Um, Lucy, you need to uh, leave your submarine and head back to the studio because you're actually a guest this week on the Type 4 subject. Fortunately, so, a submarine's in the Thames. Yeah, if we can cancel the uh, sound effects, uh, please. <laughs> For any time she speaks going forward, <laughs> please don't make water noises. Okay, so on to today's show. Uh, Tom, would you like to introduce our guests? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> in the studio today, we have Warren Wright. Hello. 
founded Trail Services in 2004 and is now managing director. Warren built his business based on family values and putting the customer first. Warren, welcome to the studio. Hi, welcome. And with us also, we've got Dave Lamb, technical director at CLM Fireproofing, with over 30 years of experience in the industry. Welcome to the studio, Dave. Thank you. And just arrived, we have Lucy Witz, head of uh, fire consultancy and training at Frankham's Risk Management Services. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for, f thanks for rushing over here from your submarine. Thanks for the welcome. Do you want a towel? <laughs> <laughs> I won't comment. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to look um, more broadly at uh, compartmentation issues, so fire stopping, type 4 fire risk assessments. Um, Lucy, can you, um, in simple terms, just start us off and explain what we're talking about um, with the term type 4 fire risk assessment? So a type 4 is the most holistic form of assessment and it involves destructive survey both in the common areas and inside flats. So originally with a type 1, they wouldn't go behind the flat entrance door. There's no form of invasive inspection within the common areas. So a lot of things can be missed. So a type 4 encapsulates the whole building and includes destructive survey. Um, so just to clarify, uh, type 2s and 3s, what, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the type of fire risk assessment? So with a type 2, that would be, again, destructive, but only within the common areas. And then a type 3 is full visual, but including flats. Lovely. Tom, did you understand Lucy's explanation of a type 4 fire risk assessment? I thought it was a beautiful description of the four <laughs> varying types. What, what I would um, probably ask Lucy, although... I'll be honest, Dave and I know the answer to this. It's more of a test of your knowledge. <laughs> but um, So responsible people obviously need to do fire risk assessments of their blocks of flats. Type of risk assessment is basically residential only, right? Um, in terms of legal responsibility, are, are landlords owners of residential buildings, are they legally obliged to do type 4s? Unfortunately, no. So as we all know, the fire safety order permits a minimum standard and it's actually local housing act that goes behind the flat entrance door so a type one is sufficient and that's just looking at the common areas only because that's what falls under the fire safety order so just to correct uh, <laughs> <laughs> obviously for the last 15 years until very recently not many people had realistically done anything beyond a type one fire risk assessment um it became a very sort of standard thing and um it, it that there was very few fire risk assessors in the industry who had actually undertaken a type 4 fire risk assessment, uh, as a bit of, in my opinion. Um, Lucy, can you just talk us through the process of a type 4, identifying how it's different to a type 1? So if we describe a type 1 as going to a building to do a visual assessment of the common areas, with a type 4, um, I know from your experiences, it's necessarily more complex um, there's a lot more people involved in the process um, for the Type 4s that you arrange at Frankham's. Can you just talk us through that a little bit just to explain the various strands of it and who gets involved? Yep, so a Type 4 would involve a team of people. So this would be a lift engineer because it includes a lift shaft survey where applicable. Uh, at Frankham's, we take a fire ass contractor with us to do the destructive element and to provide a full compartmentation survey at the end of the report. Um, this isn't always the traditional way of doing a Type 4. Some companies will use a general builder to open up um, to allow the... So Frankham specifically um, opt for a fire ass sort of accredited... Yeah, so it allows third-party accreditation, doesn't it? Okay. And um, It also means that post-survey, the works have already been spec'd out by a company and it allows the remedial works to happen a lot quicker. 
And so the, the key difference being it's um, intrusive. So what essentially are we looking at when we do that intrusive survey of, um, a, a, say, a block of flats? What, what, what is the difference between that and a visual inspection uh, type one? So the main focus, obviously, is on compartmentation issues and looking at fire stopping, whether it be present or not within the building. Obviously, it includes a sample of flats which would fall outside the scope of a type one. It'll pick up things like fire doors, any fire stopping issues, gaps within party walls, compartment walls, level of compartmentation, the degree of fire resistance afforded to the protected staircase, for example, that in a type one, it's not always possible to quantify because you don't have that level of inspection. I think there's always been a bit of um, sort of doubt in terms of uh, a, a fire risk assessment that only does the communal areas of a building. Essentially, what we're saying when we do that is that we're only looking at 10% of the building. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, the fire risk assessment covers the 100% of the building. And so all, all these years that we've been going yeah. in and just looking at the common areas, the stairwells, the riser cupboards, the plant rooms, mm. we've just looked at 10% of the building. So when we're talking about compartmentation, which is fundamental to a stay-put building, I don't see how we can do anything other than be going into flats and at least sampling the, the, the compartmentation between them because otherwise, how can you justify a, a stay-put policy? Well, you have to remember that the the, type, the four types come from the, DLC, the DCLG Purposeful Box of Flats guidance and there's there are reasons why the fire safety order requires a minimum standard of type one. And obviously, we talk about the minimum standard, but obviously the reality is that legislation stops at the front door, so it's quite difficult for fire safety legislation to require you to assess something that's outside the scope of it, which is ultimately inside the flat. And obviously when you get to the flat, particularly in social housing, you're talking about the Housing Act, which is obviously a different piece of legislation altogether. But I think what the, the argument is that, from our, and this is the way we view it, is that in terms of certain, we'll say HRRBs for the sake of it, but I mean it could extend to any sort of residential building regardless of height or complexity really, we're basically saying that a type four is necessary if you can't be assured that the level of compartmentation between flats is appropriate to support the stay put strategy. And ultimately, if you as a responsible person suspect that to be the case. Now, the issue with the DCLG guidance, which is why no one's done type fours up until basically Grenfell Tower, and I think we can all admit type fours didn't happen before Grenfell Tower yeah. happened. The reason for that is that the DCLG guide says, and and I quote because I'm sad, it's generally pessimistic to assume that compartmentation isn't appropriate to satisfy a stay-put strategy. So ultimately, a responsible person can hide, not hide in the true sense of the word, but they can defend themselves behind that and say, look, guidance says that the building should have been built appropriately. But is that not the problem, Tom, that, that actually that guidance should have said it would be overly optimistic to assume that the compartmentation well, this, is okay. So this is the issue. So the, the, you're, you're right in some respects and wrong in others, and only wrong to the extent that to, in order for you to, to take the position that it would be optimistic to assume it's bad is to basically take the baseline that the whole built environment is bad, right? Now, the reality is that although the number of Type 4s we've done, the number of intrusive surveys we've done across the UK... And, you know, John will readily admit that the surveys that you guys have done 
for for clients have, have identified a hundred percent failure rate in compartmentation. Yeah, yeah. Now, what that does is though, that says that in a hundred percent of cases we found compartmentation problems, not in a hundred percent of cases we found a hundred percent failure of compartmentation. I.e., it would be ludicrous to continue living in that building. But what it does do is say we aren't on a spectrum saying to what extent those failures exist because when you're doing a type four you identify compartmentation issues between a flat the right thing to do of course is to bring it back up to standard what it doesn't do is say from a risk perspective that hole isn't really problematic and i think it's probably reasonable for a responsible person historically to have said you know what We've had Lackanall House. Ten years later, we have Grenfell Tower. We've had thousands of fires in purpose-built blocks of flats before that, but we haven't had issues with party wall failure. We haven't had issues with fire spreading between flats internally. Therefore, is it a massive problem? But what has happened is since Grenfell Tower is RPs have wised up and said, I don't want to be holding the can if this happens ever again. So how do I go above and beyond? And what they are doing is, quite rightly, I think, is looking at their portfolio and saying, let's go type four, which is why you guys are so busy doing type four surveys in purposeful blocks, which I think we're probably going to come on to now, Dave, aren't we? Uh, we, we are, certainly. I mean, Lucy, do, do, to bring Lucy back into the conversation, do, we think, do you think that type fours should be considered mandatory for certain types of building? Is the legislation uh, wrong that it stops at the front door? Yeah, I think to an extent the scope of a Type 1 needs to be increased as a minimum. Definitely within the communal areas, it always needs to involve an element of intrusive survey. The scope at the moment almost permits people not lifting a ceiling tile and they can be that basic and they haven't looked in, you know, more than 10% of risers and how are they getting a real feel for the building? So, yes, to an extent, I think if we could make type 4 is mandatory then great but maybe that's a bit too much of a big step up so I think we should look first to increase the scope of a type 1. Okay so so Lucy your your type 4 projects that you've been working on some very large ones I know over the last sort of two to three years um, with some very large sort of proactive housing associations um, you, you, you mentioned you take fire ass contractors with you when you actually do the assessment so you've been using companies like um, CLM um, trail services and gunfire, um, total protection. There's a number of different ones that we've been using. Um, so to bring uh, Warren and Dave into the uh, conversation, um, Warren, how's um, how's your involvement? How busy are you guys at the moment? Is it have you seen an upturn? Massively, extremely busy. Um, clients want so much now since Grenfell. They're obviously looking at their buildings a lot more. Type four surveys is a big thing, but I think. People are just taking a lot more sort of knowledge of what's gone on with Grenfell and looking at compartmentation, looking at what the building structure is, the fabric of the building, what's within the fabric of the building. You know, um, yeah, that's what I think. So we are we are extremely busy, getting busier every day. You know, I think the biggest problem we're having at the moment is accreditation. We're fully accredited. We bring new guys on. They've got to come accredited. And it's hard to get them accredited like Firas or whatever because the Firas are so busy as well to get accredited. So... Yeah, the industry's busy. The industry's really busy. Yeah, I think the industry as a whole is busy. And I think that, you know, likewise with CLM, we're experiencing the same sort of problems. The, the level of requirement from, from customers and, and clients is significant. And to maintain that mm. is, is become a challenge in itself. 
particularly with staff. Dave, what are you seeing your clients focus on? Has there been a particular change in, in, in emphasis in what they're focusing on more recently? No, I, think, I think the compartmentation is the buzzword that's been floated around. And, you know, I looking at, you know, we've got the controversy, if you want to, to call it that, of the stay-put policies and then ensuring that you've got compartmentation that actually fits into that. So there's a lot of focus on that. Um, so, Warren, do you think the... Um the level of requirement that you're getting from clients is a is a is a positive and well founded thing. I mean, I know that as a third party certificated organisation, the reality is that if you're trying to fight toe to toe with a non accredited company, then obviously, if 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 clients are looking at price over quality, that becomes quite difficult because certified products cost more, accredited people cost more. Being part of the scheme is more. I mean, do you see it as a as a benefit that that people are focusing on? Third-party certification. I mean, can, can clients do more than that? Do you think? I think. I think, Tom. I think um, previously, clients were really, really worried about accreditation. Now, I think it's all about the accreditation. Yeah. I think it's about the quality. I think it's about the policies that the company, Dave and myself's company, have got in place to manufacture that the guys that we put out on site do the job properly. And the cowboys that, and I can openly say that the cowboys yeah. are being pushed out of the market. You know, they've got to be, you know. You're talking about the non-accredited. Non-accredited, the companies that don't do a good job, don't perform. Yeah, I think Firas, BM Trada, you know, you've got to be associated to them now. You've got to be, yeah. and it's not just the manager that's got the certificate. It's every operative that has to have a level of training. As a company, Trail, every one of my operative is Firas installer, whatever product they're installing. Every supervisor is, is accredited to that, to the supervisor certification, and all the managers above them have all, all got training through the Fire Protection Association, risk assessors. Even if they don't really have much to do with the fire, they know about it. So, know? Lucy, in terms of your Type 4s, so you're using these sort of accredited uh, fire stoppers to assist you on your Type 4s. Are you, are you finding the same thing? You, you could only use accredit. I mean, do the, your fire risk assessors have the same sort of accreditations? Yep, absolutely. So we either use people that are registered themselves or actually as a company, we have BAFE FSP 205. Um, so that's like the same sort of thing, a third party accreditation for the company as a whole. And it just means that we as a company have the processes in place to ensure that the assessment we're giving at the end of the day is suitable and sufficient. So, so where you bring on a compartmentation specialist, could you only use um, a third party accredited company? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We wouldn't use a company that wasn't accredited. I mean, I mean, just to kind of go into accreditation a little bit, because I get the feeling that there's going to be some keyboard warriors listening to this who will be working for a fire stopping company who kind of aren't third party certificated, who are using, you know, quality, like certified products and they're doing it in accordance with the, the manufacturer's recommendations and they're adequately insured for the work they're doing. Um, I think it's just it's just worth mentioning that ultimately third party certification isn't a panacea in that you you can utilize a third party certificate contractor who doesn't do you a good job and there will be people out yeah. there who will say do you know what I've used the fire certificate or another sort of certification scheme and had bad work done. Um, I'm sure as both of you as third-party certificated organisations have probably swept up the problems of a third-party certificated contractor where work has been found to be deficient. So, I mean, that exists. And then also not being third-party certificated doesn't necessarily make you incompetent. No. But but ultimately, we're in a we're in a world now where this where assurance is king, you know. 
and how do you get the most assurance that the people you are using are qualified to do the job that you you know you're utilizing them for in the fire safety world this is where third UCAS accredited third party certification schemes have have come um and they are now front and center and and that, that's very much you know the way things are going and what's worth mentioning dave of course is that jonathan o'neill who is the um managing director of the fire protection association is very very keen at the moment and he is he's bugging the government which is a polite polite way basically saying that responsible people theoretically might be able to use the utilization of a third party certificated contractor as defense should they breach the fire safety order to basically say if, if a fireman identified problem in compartmentation then there is uh, what what the the fpa is saying by virtue of jonathan o'neill is that should they um be found to be lacking the rp can say I couldn't do any more. I engaged the third party certificated contractor, which basically opens up the market to third party certification. And basically, as you say, I mean, you, you you talk about cowboys, but let's just say people who who may be competent or not, but they can't really demonstrate it yeah. in the way you guys can, for example. You know, potentially that completely pushes them out of the market. Should that be the case? I mean, if you're an RP, why would you use someone that no. wasn't third party certificated if using them is a is a justifiable defense? in court should anything happen. So I think that third party thing is going to be very, very powerful going forward. And probably we're going to see that embedded within legislation potentially, or at least building regulations, I guess. So so, so going back to the sort of works that Warren and, and Dave do, in terms of fire stopping and compartmentation, what sort of issues are you finding, Dave? Um, what, 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 what are we talking about? What, what are the... Um... And, uh, Common. You know, for the, the main focus that you tend to find or, or tend the items that you see out there is systems or products that have potentially been installed through uh, repair sort of departments of, of social housing in particular. Um, if we look at our big nasty, the pink foam scenario that you yeah. see everywhere. So what you, you're tending to find is that, that there may have been an attempt to do compartmentation, but the systems and products that they've actually used are, you know, incapable of actually yeah. providing any fire resistance. And, and coming back to your point, you know, competence is now the big sort of buzzword in the industry yeah exactly it's, it's, it's no longer just that you are third party accredited that's 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 not where you you need to be yeah exactly yeah i mean but there's even there's like the finite details about product utilization in that you know a, a third party certificated firm will only use in a in a in a building or within a system products that have been tested together you know by one manufacturer yeah. and and there are people out there who are using products that have been tested in one situation products have been tested in another then they're putting them together and saying therefore they'll work and obviously yeah. that's not the way that there's industry guidance work. out there that, yeah, that exactly. clearly states that you you can't mix and match, you know. So if you look, you know, I know the FBA and you look at the ASFP, who yeah. who issue guidance the same. Um, so there is there is a lot of information out there, um, and it's probably been out there for a long time. Yeah. But post Grenfell, there has just been that significant highlight on probably how how lacking. Yes. we've actually been. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Lucy, in terms of the um, sort of issues that Dave Lamb's talking about there, um, 
is there a, is there a pattern? Are we are we talking about older buildings from the nineteen sixties, or are we talking about newer buildings built since twenty twelve, or where are you finding the the issues in your type four fire risk assessments? Actually, across the board, and it's almost in the older buildings is somewhat safer. So they're normally concrete block. Yes, there's holes present, but the building structure in itself is a lot more robust than these buildings now that are plasterboard partitions everywhere where contractors have come in or sometimes even the fire stopping's never been done, even in our newer buildings, or people like telecom, etc., have just punched holes straight through the wall. There's now no fire stopping between the common area and the flats. Um, but actually, that's a brilliant time to do a Type 4 because then you can go back under latent defects. So it's actually, it's both old buildings because they haven't been looked after and it's both new buildings because of poor workmanship over time. So they're both sort of coming up with the same amount of or, or equivalent but different issues, compartmentation issues. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got contractors going in, um, for instance, electricians who are being asked to fire stop and they're not trained to do so. Or you've got electricians who punch holes in the wall and then don't do any element of fire stopping. Obviously, I've just picked on electricians. It's not, yeah. they're not the only problem. Yeah, they're not the only Outrageous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other <laughs> trades are available. Other <laughs> trades, yeah. But I mean, you're right okay, in but... that modern, modern methods of construction, I mean, particularly around when you start thinking about timber frame, um, you know, that's, you know, as, as, as a complete layman, the reason people worry about, when I say complete, I don't mean me. I mean, if you were a complete layman, right? Um, you, people as complete laymans will think, you know, if you build a building out of wood, they're inherently dangerous. And the reality is that's not necessarily true. In fact, it probably isn't true in the main. In, in the main, It's problematic if the people that are building them aren't doing it properly. And, you know, the problem is with the construction industry, people at the upper end of doing things really well and they're spending an awful lot of money doing things properly using third party... I mean third-party certificated schemes, and then getting a third-party certificated contract to come and check that work and then do remediation off the back of it. I mean, that is that is braces, yeah, belt, belt, and then an overcoat over the top. You know, they really are going at it. And the reason is because they acknowledge that the cost to remediate that defect in the built environment once they've handed it over is just astronomical. And, and the risk to the business, if they get it wrong, both like life safety to the occupant predominantly, reputational damage and stuff like that is so significant now, particularly around the way it is. We've got to the point where organisations are doing the right thing and building with a third-party certificate contractor. And rather than saying, you know what, that's enough, which we could probably all agree amongst ourselves is enough, right? Use trial, use CLM, for example, that would be enough to guarantee your building's been been sort of fire-stopped properly. But what they're then saying is, actually, you're going to come and check your work and we're going to do whatever you think he's not done properly. So I've then got or double uh, double the assurance that the work's been done properly. So there are constructors doing that and it worries me that there are constructors out there who aren't even doing one of those things. There are constructors out there who are not using third-party certificated organisations and the reason they're not is because they don't have to. No. And that's a mass for me that's a massive problem. You know, organisations are basically choosing to do it for per like for business assurance purposes. And they're not doing it because the law requires it, although it's inferred in like approved document B. It's not a requirement to yeah, use. Yeah, it's not a it's no. not a requirement. No, to absolutely. Use a third party exactly, and that's it, why so. people like Dave and um, Lucy will wander around buildings for the le rest of their lives, 
I wish you the best of luck and I hope other things work for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you'll wander around because for the rest of your lives have been handed over You'll now, be back. Yeah. And there'll be pink foam in them and it'll be done by non-competent people or non-certified people. And that's because you don't have to do it. Warren, what sort of risks are clients running by not addressing their compartmentation issues? Sort of eloquently put up, you know, um, explained by Tom there. What, what? I think, I mean, going back to, before we go on to that, if that's okay, going back to the other point, most of our problems are new build actually, more yeah. than existing, you know, because... A lot of it falls with the um, dry liner. You know, yeah, indeed, yeah, So that's what we find is the biggest problem. But going back to obviously what you just said, Dave, the the biggest issue. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm, I've got the same here. <laughs> <laughs> is obviously you know not doing compartmentation is you've got early spread of flames, you know fires break out in other areas if the fabric of the building hasn't been compartmented, you know you've got that as a big issue, and then you've got. Um, risk of firefighters coming in first of all where do they fight the fire first you know and then obviously you've got you know before all that the loss of life which is, is a big thing yeah indeed time's beaten us Tom has it? well it has if we're going to do our 90 second quiz this week so we've literally got 93 seconds left go well at least we do 45 okay. seconds for each of our guests tonight today is that how we're going to roll? Oh. have I, I been cut from should. the programme? Uh, you don't get to join in because yeah, because of your new caster. Because you have uh, new you, hair. You, you Conflict of interest. Insider information, yeah. Um, okay, chap. So every week we do a 90-second quiz. Um, I think it's probably only fair to give you 90 seconds each. Otherwise... Well, I, I love that. Today's a 90-second quiz. In order to make it fair, we're going to give you 90 seconds. <laughs> that would be the requirement there, I think. I actually think you need to become a third-party certificate quiz master, Dave, because yeah. you're incompetent. Don't distract me. I'm trying to find my questions, Tom. <laughs> I, can't, I can't work out where we were up to last week. I reckon it's... I know. Where last, is... last week's last question was about Johnny Depp being afraid of clowns. Yeah. Which Texan city is it illegal to have a lock on a fish tank? Okay, so we'll have a face-off. Trail services Wait, CLM. Wait, coming? Uh, Warren... Okay. You've got 90 seconds, Are you Tom. timing it or am I? You time it, my friend. Oh, hang on, I've got my iPhone oh, Is it 90 seconds here. each or 45 seconds? 90 seconds. Okay. 90 seconds, Warren. So, so far, we have... Um, hang on. Um, who's at the top of the leaderboard for this series? Um, it is... Ar <laughs> I can't remember. Aaron John is Aaron top John? with two. Yep. Top, top of the it's hard to imagine. <laughs> you can only answer two, two questions guns. right. Russ, Russ Timpson is in second with I one one point. Russ Timpson is in one, okay. but he did utilise his answers to plug varying books and all <laughs> yeah. sorts. I feel that usually halfway through the quiz, people suddenly get the general. They gist, do. They go actually. just guess anything. Yeah, yeah. And normally the first. It doesn't really is right. matter. You're not. You're very unlikely to get it. Okay. Are you ready, Warren? Okay. Go. Okay. Washington police officers get half hour class in how to do what. Shoot. Sit down. Ooh. In California, you can't legally buy a mousetrap without having a what? A license. Bit more? We'll give you half a mark. Hunting license. Who said, I've never had an accident worth talking about? John Wayne. Captain E.J. Smith of the Titanic. <laughs> In the French vineyards, it is illegal to do what? Drink. Land a flying saucer. <laughs> what? <laughs> in Texas, it's illegal to swear in front of what? Animals. A corpse. Coprostastophobia is a fear of what? I haven't got a clue. Constipation. What type of sportsmen are most likely to get diseased? 
I can't ask that question. In South, <laughs> in South Dakota, it's legal to fall down and sleep where? Uh, uh, <laughs> on the floor. In a cheese factory. It's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal in Georgia to do what with a fork? Uh, uh, eat. Eat what? Pigs. Nearly fried chicken. <laughs> In Blythe, California, you can't wear cowboy boots unless you own at least five what? Horses. Very nearly five head of cattle. Oh. In Kansas, it's illegal to eat cherry pie with what? Cream. Ice cream. Oh, 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 nearly that. Big, 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 big. That's it. That's it. That's so it. That's half a mark. Well I think that was two half marks, which is one one point. So I just yes. want I just want one. to ask what? before we do. There was a question about cowboy boots, and the answer was five um, horses, and the answer was five head of cattle. So I'm going to ask whether people think that's worthy of another half mark. Oh, it's got to be. So. It's got to be. What do you think, Dave? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Thanks, give it to Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that Does that mean I'll get two points? Just to, just to be clear, doesn't mean you get it because Dave's in charge of the quiz. Be <laughs> 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 under no illusion, he will decide. I will say half decide. a mark just to make the quiz exciting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Well, then I confirm then that Warren has one and a half points and his second. Okay, going to flown in the second there, Warren. <laughs> Superb. Okay, we're gonna have to crack on. Dave Lamb, here we go. Dave Lamb from CLM. Mm, ready? Are you ready, my friend? Mm-hmm. Okay, go. The first puck used in the game of ice hockey game was the first puck used made out of... Pig's ears. Frozen cow manure. What ailment kills the most fruit flies? Coffee. Constipation. (laughs) It's illegal in Texas to put what on your neighbour's cow? Cats. (laughs) Graffiti. A law in Illinois prohibits men from doing what in public? Walking. <laughs> I wish I hadn't asked that one. Walking. Uh, no, having an erection. In Minnesota, <laughs> it is illegal to tease what type of animal? Giraffes. A skunk. In Virginia, it's against the law for people to bribe anyone except who? Dead people. Political candidates. Same thing. Who once said China is a big country inhabited by many Chinese? Trump. Charles de Gaulle. Standard condoms can keep for how long if stored in a cool and dark place? 20 years. Uh, <laughs> lower, Tom, any guess? Five years. Lower? One Lucy? year? Explain uh, five children. No. <laughs> five months, four, six four, months? Four years. That's close. You're random. Yeah, that's close. In New York, by law, the death penalty is required for what act? Uh, breathing. Jumping off a building. There you go. 30... Where is it illegal to shoot a buffalo from the second story of a hotel room? Beep, beep, beep. Denver. Very nearly. Texas. There's a walk over that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Dave has jumped into fourth place. I don't think he jumped into I don't fourth think place. He fell there. He fell into fourth place. <laughs> okay. Zero. So, zero. So top, of, uh, top is Aaron John with two, Warren with one and a half, Russ Timpson with one. And uh, CLM are bottom. Well, we haven't done you yet. We'll oh, do you at the oh, end of the series. You. Okay, that's good. I, okay. Don't worry, I will beat you with <laughs> minus one. Gentlemen, Warren, Dave, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. Coming to the studio, Lucy, where are you going to be reporting from next week? Baghdad. Baghdad, very specific. I, I worry wholeheartedly. You do know there's not a war there anymore, don't you? <laughs> 
how do we do back dad noises? We're just trying to set up the noise guy. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, if anybody uh, wants to comment on the show or would like to appear on future shows, please feel free to email us at Dave and Tom at openfirepodcast.com. Other than that, Tom. Hello. See you next week. You will, but why don't you turn up on time this week? I will, I will try my best. Nice. Podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as a substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in a podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries here in Frankham make no warranty guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcast. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within. 